You may be seated. Seated because I want to give you a bit of context before we get to this long passage that you're looking at. But I'm delighted to be with you this morning as we gather before God's Word. We ask Him to meet us here to show Himself, and He does so as He comes to us through His Word. We're in a series that you have um, considered for now weeks and weeks. Uh, the, the series, you may remember, is printed uh, below the sermon text and is entitled Delivered. It is a story of deliverance. <clears throat> it's a story of deliverance. It's a story as well as the presence of God with His people. And it's the presence of God with His people that seems to be in jeopardy as we come to this text today. This is um, Mount Sinai. We've been around Mount Sinai. Moses has been up and down Mount Sinai several times by now. But it was on Mount Sinai where he first received the Ten Commandments that he will today deliver uh, in writing uh, to the people at the bottom of the mount. It was after he received those words that in chapter 24, that was Exodus 20 and Exodus 24, we see a remarkable scene where Israel is ratifying that covenant. They're celebrating, they're rejoicing, they're worshiping around the word that has come to them and the God who is in their midst. That's chapter 24. And by the time we get to chapter 32, it's a different story. The words just preceding this text are these. The last verse of chapter 31 is this. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And then we come to this passage before us. Hear God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster among your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Israel gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on each side each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, 
I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. O oh Lord, we, your people, gather in your presence and we long to hear your word. Would you turn our eyes away from worthless things and give us life in your ways? Because we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is that probably most well-known passage of Exodus. If you've known anything about Exodus, you knew this, or you've seen displays of this, this drama, this story. This chapter that's before us is actually tantalizingly incomplete. Uh, the reason for that is that the drama before us, the issues are not resolved by the time we get to the end of the chapter. Which is why you might read chapter 32 along with chapter 33 and 34. But rather than read three chapters to you today, we're going to start where the story and there is a hint of what, it, what, what awaits us. There's rebellion. There's some mediation. There's the infliction of God's wrath. And there is a hint of hope. Maybe that's the reason that one sermon I ran across in preparing for this was a sermon that had selections from all three chapters. You might do well later this day uh, to read ahead. But at least come back next week. There's more to the story that begins this day. Actually, this story doesn't begin here. It begins earlier in Exodus. It begins in that chapter 24 that I mentioned earlier where, where these same people are worshiping the living God and are offering sacrifices. They've pledged themselves. And the words that Moses heard that day are... <clears throat> All that the Lord requires, we will do. Everything. He is so faithful to us. Anything that he asks of us, we will do. That was chapter 24. That was as Moses was going up and down Mount Sinai. And if you remember from last week, and what we have before us is not only tabernacle plans, but we have craftsmen ready to build a tabernacle. But before the tabernacle could be built, the presence of God among his people is put in danger by their blatant apostasy. The narrative of these three chapters records the sin of Israel and Aaron together, which threatened to bring God's destructive wrath instead of his covenant presence. That's what's at stake. But what we read and gather from this text, this, te- this chapter teaches us something. It teaches us that no matter how hard you fall, no matter how faint the hint of grace you perceive, you can know that there's more grace to come. That's the message here. That's the big idea. 
And what I'm hoping is that we can unfold this as we look at the three elements of this drama, three stages, three scenes perhaps, you might say. We're going to see here in this chapter 32, we're going to see folly that leads to corruption that elicits a voice. Folly that leads to corruption that elicits a voice. It's a folly that threatens ruin. It's a corruption that provokes wrath. And it's a voice that holds out hope. First, uh, the folly that threatens ruin. That's these first six verses where this story really begins to take shape. Moses has been away for 40 days and the scene shifts to the valley floor. And at the valley floor, what's going on there blows us away as we read the people that had pledged their faithfulness and fidelity to God are now caught up in something that to us seems absurd. I've chosen the word folly. More on that later. But, but there's a folly that uh, the Apostle Paul describes when he talks about the foolishness that leads to this sort of thing. More on that later. But what we see in this folly is we see, we see both panic and contempt. Let me see if I can show you that. Moses has been away 40 days. And what we read, surprisingly, is not concern about Moses. It's panic because of his absence. You know there's a difference. They're not going to send a rescue party. They're trying to figure out what happens if Moses is gone and he's gone forever. There's some panic there. That's where this begins. Uh, his absence creates a sense of panic and, and uncertainty and a fear. Someone has suggested that, uh, that panic and, and the fear of his abs- Moses' absence is just as much of what drives this story as the idolatry of their hearts. Oh, that idolatry is real. But it's an idolatry fueled by panic, perhaps. Panic that is accompanied with contempt. Did you catch it? It's quite subtle. But when they talk about this fellow, Moses... A little bit of contempt that he has abandoned us, that he's, he's gone away and he's not come back. This fellow, Moses, is showing his, his reality. He's showing us his character now. He's not the one that we thought that we could trust. There's some contempt there. Uh, one, <clears throat> one commentator about the, trying to explain this notion of panic and worry that becomes anger and contempt is we can see it when, <clears throat> when we think about the child that's waiting for his, his or her parent to pick them up at school. And one after another, the children's rides come and then he or she is left alone for what seems like forever, waiting on the side of his mother's car coming up the driveway. And she doesn't come and she doesn't come. And, he, and he, he's, he's worried and then he begins to be concerned. Has something happened? And then when the car finally pulls up and he takes his seat in the car, panic and worry and concern boil into anger. Why were you late? Why did you leave me? 
it's not hard to understand how panic and worry can, can flow over into contempt. There's panic and contempt that begins this story, but there's also exchange and reversal. It's bewildering to us when we see this scene and we see a golden calf and people gathered around that. It's just absurd. How can a people go from such faithfulness to God just a few chapters prior, while Moses has been away, how can they go from faithfulness to this? I want to suggest there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, it's not a quick turn. It's not a quick turn from faithfulness to infidelity. Like yours and mine. It's usually not a quick turn. It's something that develops with multiple stops and long layovers in between. Granted, not much time has gone by, 40 days. But before we lose sight of that, consider how long does it take for you, for your heart to latch onto something and to get lost? It doesn't take 40 days. It doesn't take 40 minutes. Our hearts are wired in such a way that they're going to latch on to something. And when, and when given the opportunity, we get really creative in finding ways to latch on to something besides the one true thing, the living God. Multiple stops along the with long layovers in between. That grumbling, you know, remember we read about the, this is a people that grumble. That grumbling has likely taken root in their lives and is now bearing fruit. It doesn't just go away. It's now in full bloom. This is a grumbling people that we've watched from the beginning of this rescue. But there's another reason. It's not just that we linger on things and we get lost along the way. There's another reason for this exchange, and it is this, that unrighteousness deadens you. The things that, that still are true, that are still not dealt with in our lives, the unrighteousness, the, the, the old nature, is to use some New Testament language, those things tend to deaden us, to make us dull and numb to the things that are true and lovely and beautiful. And when we get lost, you know this, I know this, when we, when we land in some pattern of thinking or behaving that, is, that lacks righteousness, that it lacks truth and goodness and beauty, we, we find our way into that and it numbs us to the reality and the truth of the things that are true, the things that are lovely and beautiful. Why gold? How did this come about? Uh, what is it that, why did Aaron, in his response to their demands, start talking about gold earrings? Well, we don't know for sure. Uh, it's a story that begs for explanation. But there's some theories. Some theories seem to suggest some things that are worth considering. Do you remember the tabernacle blueprint? Do you remember the, the prominent feature of the tabernacle design? 
It was gold. It wasn't the only color. It was the prominent. And, and things were layered with gold and covered with gold. And when you, when you walk in one day, eventually, when you do walk into the... All they have is a blueprint and instructions right now. But that gold in that tabernacle was meant to be something. And maybe, just maybe, that what's going on here with a golden calf is that the people are wanting from something that they create that the tabernacle was intended to do. To provide a concrete point of contact between the people and God. That goal that was intended for the tabernacle, that was, that was planned for the tabernacle, that did not yet exist, is showing up in, some, in a substitute that is golden. Maybe that's it. We don't really know. Why a calf? Well, there is some better answers to that one. A calf, you see, was a, was a common idol image in the ancient Near East. Specifically, it was thought that calves or bulls functioned as pedestals for gods seated or for gods standing above them. That was common understanding in the ancient Near East, that a calf or a bull was a pedestal or a footstool or the place where God would take up his presence. We don't know. <clears throat> But we have a gold, a calf of gold, is what we have in front of us. When God tells the story about the golden calf, when he gives the account, Aaron plays the starring role. You noted that, right? Aaron is a prime actor. But to hear Aaron tell it, he was a minor character, one of the extras. Furthermore, he treated the golden calf like some kind of spontaneous miracle. You caught that, didn't you? Cow? What cow? Oh, oh, that cow. Well, Moses, uh, I've been wondering about that myself. Uh, I don't know how it got there. It was unbelievable. I mean, the people took off their jewelry, and the next thing you know, there's this cow. And they're worshiping it. It would be humorous if it weren't so tragic. Idols are always man-made. But Aaron tries to make it sound like this one was self-produced. I'm not sure Moses bought Aaron's argument. It was his attempt to dodge some of the responsibility, it seems. We would never do that. We would never dodge responsibility. Or maybe we would. There's an exchange, but there's also a reversal. What I mean by that is if you go back uh, and look at chapter 24 where they're ratifying the covenant, here's how they did so. You can look at this later. Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. Do you see the connection? There's a clear, there's a clear parallel between the true ratification of the covenant as it, was, as it was done in chapter 24 and what we see going on with this golden calf with the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And, and Aaron even declares a feast. They're, they're reenacting and reversing 
what they had done earlier. But as a word of caution, before we lose ourselves in our condescending appraisal of Israel, what I mean by that is we can be a little uppity and say we would never do that. And the truth is, probably we wouldn't do that. But consider that maybe the, abs- the absurdity of worshiping a calf of gold blinds us to our own obscure, obscure, creative and absurd schemes to find life, to make our way apart from Him. We're pretty good at that. Yeah, it's silly. A golden calf. What do you think the cloud of witnesses thinks about our schemes to make life work apart from the one true living God? There's folly that threatens ruin that leads to corruption that provokes wrath. I get that word corruption right out of verse 7. That's God's description of this. They have corrupted themselves. The the scene shifts from from the valley floor to the mountaintop where we see God's reaction to what's going on. Moses doesn't know this yet. And God's the one who tells him. And he says to Moses, verse 10, 7 through 10, he says, go down. It's an urgent command. It's actually go, descend. That's that's the, the, the instructions. And he calls them your people, Moses. Moses, these are your people now, effectively, in the moment, separating himself from them, disowning them because of what is going on in their hearts and in their lives. This is a people, verse 8, who've turned aside quickly. Forty days is a quick time in the big scheme of things. (laughs) They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. He's virtually saying that there's no purpose in continuing this, Moses. There's no, there's, no, there's no sense in continuing with covenant laws and covenant descriptors and covenant activities when the covenant itself is being shattered. He calls them stiff-necked. That's the, that's the first time that word appears in Scripture. It's going to come up again. It fits with... The, the reality of the situation, one, <clears throat> one person describes it as nat- Israel's natural propensity to disobey God's explicit commands. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> A natural propensity to display God's explicit commands. Uh, it probably, says one observer, comes from, from the area of agriculture, where you've got an animal... <clears throat> plowing the field and you're trying to turn the animal one direction when you get to the end of a row to turn him around and go the other way and when he that animal resists he resists with what a stiff neck some of you if you've ever ridden a horse you know what a stiff neck feels like perhaps it's the first time this word's been used but it's been on display since they came out of the water since they came out of the sea, the Red Sea. It was the same people that grumbled about 
a lack of food. The same people that grumbled about a lack of water. Uh, this grumbling and the stiff neck, they, they go together. Which is why, finally, God in this moment says to Moses, verse 10, and this should, this should stagger us. Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. In order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Did you see that coming? <laughs> Uh, Moses didn't see it coming. Wait a minute. These are your people. And God says, I want to start over with you. I'm done. They've shown themselves for who they are again and again. Leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. That should raise some questions. If you know there anything else about the story of redemption, that should raise lots of questions. J.I. Packer helps me, maybe you. We, we know that wrath is deep, intense anger and indignation. It seems so unworthy of God. But he's the one who's laid it before us when he says, Let my wrath burn hot against them. These aren't people along the way that have described God in terms to evoke a response. This is how God describes himself. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. But this is where Packer helps me. He says, you know, God's wrath is not like ours. It's not like our wrath. God's wrath is not capricious. It's not self-indulgent. It's not irritable. It's not, it's not his response and irritation to something. We could read the text that way. God's wrath is his holy response to objective moral evil. That's a better way to read this text. God's wrath is his holy response to objective moral evil. And that's not self-indulgent. That's not irritable. It's not capricious. It is judicial. And it is proportional. God's wrath is always that way. We're going to see a display of his wrath before we finish this today. He says, go down. This people have turned away from me. So Moses goes down. This is verses 15 to 20. You can read this. <clears throat> Where Moses comes down and, and what he experienced with God. And he's taken into himself. And as he comes around the bend and he he meets Joshua. Joshua hears something, and Joshua, the military man, hears the sound of war. That's what he hears. The camp is close enough to hear. It's not close enough to see. So they don't know exactly what's happening at the foot of the, of the mount, but they can hear noise, and the military man decides it's either the, the cry of victory or the cry of defeat. That's what's going on. And Moses, more experienced, keener ears perhaps, says, no, Joshua, that's singing. They are singing. And with that in his mind, they continue to descend. As he comes around the corner, we read that he saw the camp. And what Moses saw going on causes, we read in verse 19, his anger to burn hot. 
As, as Yahweh's anger burns hot on the top of the mountain, Moses descends and his anger is burning hot. And then he shatters the tablets in their presence. Then he destroys the golden calf. He crushes it. He burns it. He pulverizes it. And then he liquefies it and has the people drink it. That last part's puzzling to us. The whole thing is puzzling, but we're not told, all, it's not altogether clear why he made them drink it. But he's done everything he can to eliminate this and for them to see the consequences of their actions and behaviors. The consequences of their corruption, their folly. You know, folly and corruption has consequences. And sometimes we live with those. God doesn't spare us of the consequences. But as we endure those consequences, most often at his, in his hand, those become wake-up calls. Was it an overreaction? God's wrath, I'll remind us, is judicial and proportional. Flash forward, if you would. You can look at, maybe you're already thinking of these words that you would read in Romans 1. When the Apostle Paul writes about the wrath of God. He writes about corruption. He writes about an exchange. He writes about folly. When he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and, fool and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Do you think Paul had this event in mind? There's a folly that threatens ruin. There's a corruption that provokes wrath. And we're going to see some of that wrath on display when, when he calls a group of people to himself and says to the Levites who've responded, go to your brothers, and that day 3,000 died as object lessons. God's wrath is real. Ask the families of those 3,000. In His grace and in His mercy, 3,000, which seems like an overkill. Can I say that? was a small percentage of those who were gathered around a golden calf. Biblical scholars have, all, have struggled to kind of determine how many Israelites were there, and, and they don't all agree. <laughs> there were lots. 3,000 was an object lesson. 
God's wrath is real. It's a wake-up call. And it's an invitation to us. But besides wrath, there's a voice. There's a voice that holds out hope, and we hear this voice twice. By the way, the tabernacle plans that have been laid out, now this occurs. How can God deal with such a stiff-necked people? And when you get to chapter 35, guess what? The tabernacle project is back on. What happened? Well, a lot happened, but this happened. Moses prayed. Moses implored God. That's what we see twice here, that he he prays twice, verses 11 to 14. Why does your wrath burn hot, O God? Why should the Egyptians have something to say bad about you? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, your servants that you swore, that promise you made. Remember them. And something in Moses' prayer lands in the heart of God. And we read in verse 14, the Lord relented. The Lord relented from his plan to abandon this project and to start all over. That should raise some questions too for us. The Lord relented? It sounded so firm. It sounded so decided. This may help. The word translated relented it's actually described something that we need to deal with, but, but it does not always mean to change one's mind. It can also mean to be moved to pity, to have compassion for others. The basic idea is that God felt a sorrow or had compassion because we have a God whose wrath is real, but so is his mercy. And he doesn't stop being one to be the other. (laughs) They are so united together. They come together at the cross, you understand. Moses' intercession, Moses prays here. And his, his work as an intermediary, as, a, as an intercessor, averts the, the first crisis, the immediate threat right here of annihilation. He averts that threat. When when we read that God relented of his plan, but he also foreshadows the work of another intercession, the work of the risen and ascended Jesus. Moses averts, but he also portrays his work. Did you notice verse 31? He says, God, if you will forgive, but if not, blot me out. Blot me out of the book that you have written, kind of that ancient census record. Moses essentially says, let me take the hit. He's willing to trade his life for the life of the people. But God didn't go there. He couldn't go there. He couldn't let Moses take the hit because Moses, too, was sinful and not without blemish. Psalm 106, 
reads like this, Therefore he said he would destroy them, speaking of God, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses' plea turned away God's wrath in part for a time. There are 3,000 bodies that suggest that Moses' plea did not turn back God's wrath in full. But it did for a time. And as Moses came down to the people, Jesus will come down to the world. Moses turns away God's wrath for now. Jesus will turn away God's wrath for all time. Moses said to the people, perhaps I can go to him and make atonement for your sin. How different that is, says one writer, from what we see in Christ. Having done all, he went back to heaven, not with a perhaps, but to lay upon the throne the imperishable memorials of an atonement already accomplished. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Moses is a shadowy image of Christ's work as an, as an intercessor, as a mediator, a shadowy image. Christ's work is finished and full. And he stands. When, when Stephen looks into heaven prior to his death, what does he see? But Christ standing at the right hand of God to pray for his own. He is seated at the right hand with his work finished, but he stands to pray for you. In verse 26, we read these words, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. That's when the Levites rally. They restore order to the camp, and the Lord sets them apart to himself, and later on, they're going to they're gonna work with Aaron. They're going to be forerunners of the great high priest. They're also his instruments that day of wrath and, and the punishment. But the reason that we can have hope this day is that God's wrath does have a landing place. You know when the plane is experiencing trouble and, and the pilot's got to find a place to land, he's looking for the nearest airport, and if he doesn't find an airport, what is it? It's a field, it's a clearing. And when the, air, when the plane makes its way into that clearing and sets the wheels on the ground and the passengers unbuckle and walk out of the, the plane that was in plight, it's because the plane had a place to land. God's wrath has a place to land, friends. It's not on you. It's not on Aaron. <laughs> it's on Christ. Christ is the one who bears your sin and mine. Who took the full blow of all that is rightly ours. Because that's what we have earned. But in His grace and mercy, 
He leaves you not with the possibility of hope, a hint of grace. He leaves you with the real thing. Hope in all of its fullness. Hope on display. And that's why when he says, come to me, it's the opportunity to <clears throat> repent and demonstrate allegiance upon the Lord. That's what the Levites did. That's what you're invited to. When he says, come to me, it's the opportunity to repent, to come to him. Have you done that? See your folly that would lead to ruin. See your rebellion that would estrange you from him and your exchange, your own stiff neck. But hear his voice that does not merely hold out hope, but brings you redemption, forgiveness, and life everlasting. As, as God said, come to me, as Moses said, come to me, Jesus will one day say, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, if we are to come to you, it's because you have brought us there. You've helped us to see with clarity the folly of our own lives, the, the rebellion and corruption that marks us. But Lord, we've also are hearing your voice. We've heard your voice, the voice that says, come to me. The voice that says, I am yours and you are mine. And there's nothing that separates us from you now in Christ. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you for a hope that is real. A redemption that is ours. Promises that are true. And your spirit who is at work in us. To love you. And to celebrate. The reality and the hope of our redemption in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.